Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Adam Andrews. Heidi, Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, yeah. David. Good, Good to be here. So we are here to discuss Ralph Moody's Little Britches. We are on the home stretch. We're going to be discussing chapters, what is it, 22 through uh, 26. This begins with Bad Times Were Not So Bad, and then it ends with Training Sky High which by the way is a great name for a chapter. I, I just like that. Um, before we get into that though, I just want to remind you about Classical U. Our friends over at Classical Academic Press put that together. And if you are a busy school or homeschool educator who is enthused about the classical tradition of education, but who wishes you had been classically trained, then Classical U was created with you in mind. They're confident this resource will inspire educators in school, homeschool, and co-ops to dig deep into the richness of learning, no matter where you find yourself on your journey in classical education. You can discover over 35 self-paced courses, new content regularly added, community forums, and recently added accreditation through ACSI. So head over to classicalu.com. And again, that is the letter U, not like you and me. So classicalu.com slash code. And you can enter the code Cersei Podcast to get free access through June 29th. And again, that's classicalu.com slash code. The code is Cersei Podcast. So thanks to Classical U for sponsoring the podcast and helping make Close Reads possible during the month of May. Okay, let's talk about Little Bushes. We didn't get into the book itself, well, into the text that much. Last week, we talked a lot about you know, Moody, uh, Ralph Moody's goals and some con- questions about uh, truth and literature and all those sorts of things. Got a little theoretical. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I want to talk about some of these chapters itself because I really enjoy this section. Um, I like that the last section ended with a chapter called I Break Nine Toes. And then the next <laughs> chapter began with a chapter called Bad Times Were Not So Bad. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the progress of the storytelling there and the chapter titles I enjoy. I break nine toes, but it's really not so bad. It's not bad. <laughs> um, and then we, what we're getting here, though, is we're getting the next step in the Ralph Moody character evolution, the character arc. And I imagine it a little bit like a TV show where say we have, it's one of those British TV shows though. It's not like 27 episodes. It's one of the British ones where there's six episodes because (laughs) that's sort of how we broke down the show. And each episode has to take that character one step further into his journey, into his maturation and towards the end goals that he has, right? And then sometimes the, the end goals maybe. Uh, the, you know, sometimes maybe he he accomplishes the things that he desired to accomplish that he really wanted before the end of the story, and then the story takes on a completely different focus, or it goes beyond what he thought he wanted, or, or it begins to take on new life at the end of the story. And it seems like here his arc is sort of beginning to culminate in what he really wanted most, at least he thought he really wanted most, because at the beginning of the book, what does he want more than anything? He wants to be high, the cowboy, right? Right. And in this section, 
he gets to be the closest thing to high as possible, right? He's being trained by high. He's training horses together with high. He's right. wearing the 10 gallon hat. He's riding the same color horse for goodness sake. Um, <laughs> and it's, so it seems like in many ways we're getting to the, uh, to, to Ralph Moody getting close to what he wants to become. And I, I, so I, in many ways, I think that this is some of the most excellent, most, um, most enjoyable writing in the whole, in the whole, um, the whole book. So given that context, I wanted to just ask both of you, if there is a particular passage or, or anecdote or just, um, uh, scenario, uh, episode, I guess is the word we've been using that, um, that really stands out to you in in this section that you that you really love that you'd like to 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 dig into either it's because it's beautiful writing or because of what is happening in 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 Ralph's life here. It's a more more open ended question than I than I typically ask perhaps, but there's just a, I just really like the 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 actual craftsmanship of these passages. So Adam, I'll go to you first. Is there a is there an episode that particularly stands out to you from these chapters? <laughs> well, I, I agree with you on the 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 place that this section takes in the in kind of the story arc of young Ralph's growing up, uh, when he when he becomes a cowpoke. Uh, it was at <laughs> chapter chapter twenty eight. Is that what it is? Um, mm-hmm. uh, the um, the thing that I thought was kind of the uh, this is probably way shallower than you were hoping for, but <laughs> I wasn't I hoping love, for anything other than what do you like? <laughs> I like the swearing at the end of chapter 24. Uh, believe it or not, I think um, maybe that's a little, that's a little symbol of, of Ralph's growing up, but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. He knew what I wanted though. He said, you're damn right. You're going to get to ride him. Open the gate, Len. And, and then uh, a little later, by God, you're going to make a cow poke little britches. As long as you're with me, you can call him your own horse. And then he laughed and said to the other man, I thought, by God, the kid was going to pull that one-inch hackamore rope in two before the music stopped. And then the, he ends the chapter with this little passage, Father never swore, and I know I would never have said it out loud. But before I really knew what I was thinking, by God, I thought so too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, that's some pretty tame swearing for the 21st century. Yeah, but, um, yeah. but the idea that he's that he is... Uh, Coming into uh, manhood is sort of is sort of hinted at by the uh, by the use of the stronger language there at the end of chapter twenty four. I thought mm-hmm. that was um, remarkable. Yeah, last week Heidi talked about um, this idea of how do, I'm trying to remember how you put it now. Um, you, this idea of shoot i totally forgot how how you put it at all but but the idea of the, like sort of the um mental emotional maturation going on um and i i'm butchering this because i if, if i could remember what you were actually were saying then it would help <laughs> but but it seems like it, it you've got on the one hand the sort of physical maturation the, the things that he's learning to endure physically he broke nine toes and he has to walk around with this makeshift you know uh splint on his foot uh, all summer and and he you know he's falling off horses and he's you know he's getting he's he's really physically growing in a lot of ways but as that's happening there are these things that are you, there's this intellectual or spiritual or um, emotional growth that's mirroring that and in some ways that's the the deepest, truest, most universal part of the whole thing. Because whether or not we all, you know, 
not very few of us actually become cowboys, right? Um, or learn how to ride horses or become a cowpoke or whatever it is. But we all go, go through hard things. And at the same time, that those hard things or those things that we're learning or enduring have a sort of spiritual or emotional maturation component at the same time. And that's the universal part of it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's true. And you really, as Adam said, you really see that in this section. You said that too, David. This there's a transition happening in Ralph and what we're what we read this week. He's becoming more aware. He's imitating more men than just his father. And and all of that imitation and that masculine influence in his life has the potential even in that just paragraph that you read to also lead him astray, right? It is a sign of maturing, yeah, but it's also there. a sign, yeah, of kind of the uh, of a loss of innocence that's happening, and that's a normal part of a boy becoming a man. That's inevitable, but there's still some sadness in that, right? That yeah. you know, when you're around certain type of man, then you get swear words stuck in your head because it's not just dad who's influencing him. Yeah, so uh, he's that's, that's right. through this too. I love the part where he says, uh, um, "It seemed like everything around this place started off with by God." <laughs> <laughs> I told myself I wasn't even going to think it, and then sure I didn't say it sometime when I wasn't thinking. I mean, that's a that's a a, a comic version of what you're saying, Heidi. That the yep. The he's the in, the the circle of influences on him is broadening, and he's starting to take uh, ownership of his own development a little bit. I mean, right. he really is becoming a man in deciding, um, you know, how how much to let the, the swearing around him affect his affect his behavior. Right. <laughs> I, I I'm glad you brought up that there are other men, you know, because it begins. There is this comparison then between these different you know, authority figures in his life because you have the father, obviously. And gradually, you know, you had Fred Otland there, but just sort of on the edges. And then you've got both High and this Mr. Cooper guy. Mr. Uh-huh. Cooper's sort of trying to look out for the mother's interests. <laughs> right. The High sort of looking out for, you know, if this kid's going to be a cowboy, which he wants to be, then this is what's going to have to happen. It's going to, ha- he's going to have to get thrown off. He's going to have to learn these things. You know, it's not going to be, um, it's, it can't be, you, we can't have the mother sort of hovering over him if he's going to be good at what he wants to be good at. And right. in some ways that sort of uh, seems to mirror, you know, the father seems to be stuck in between those two concepts. He uh-huh. seems to recognize, I guess, is, you know, that reality that he needs high to train Ralph, that he needs to let Ralph have some freedom to learn from these people and and hopefully have the uh, the wherewithal to resist being totally like them, but he also kind of doesn't really he doesn't not totally ready to give them up yet, you know. So right. father sort of seems to be stuck in the middle, and and that seems to be a con a common idea in this book. You know, we talked about the idea of civilization on one side and the wilderness on the other, and here the father's kind of stuck trying to figure out well wh- where do I actually how much rain so to speak do I give do I give out and that so I wonder if. Now that I just said the word rain. Uh-huh. <laughs> so now I'm wondering if Ralph Moody's the patterns that the father is using to quote, you know, quote unquote train Ralph mirror any of the, the, the things that they do, either the father does or, or, um, high does and train the horses. 
That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that before, but that fits. The other role that father plays with Ralph is just what you pointed out. He's the mediator of these competing forces in Ralph's life, right? Ralph doesn't know how to make sense of it. There's mother on one side who wants to protect him. There's high on the other side, like pushing him onto the horse. And and it's father that mediates those competing forces. And he does that over and over and over again. Even within Ralph himself, the competing desire for good and the desire to do wrong. Hmm. It's father who mediates that. Hmm. Um, here at the end of 25, uh, a pretty the, strong, that's uh, a pretty strong current, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, yeah. That, that, that little lecture, a gentle lecture about the currents. I love the, the way that father says, I have an idea. You'll find the currents a bit strong up at the mountain ranch. Uh, and I love that he's mediating, just like you said, Heidi. He's he's giving an opinion. He's saying that's there's some things about the the atmosphere up there that are bad influences that are going to you know turn you the wrong way, maybe. But he's also saying you're going to figure it out. It's it's your job to navigate, and I'm not going to. My hand's kind of off the tiller a little bit. Hmm. Uh-huh. And he, you know, he says the you know just after that, the next paragraph at the end of the chapter. We left the creek just when the sun started to dip down over the highest mountain peak so I could get back to Cooper's before dark. When I went, Father walked out to the gate beside Topsy. He had his hand on my knee and was looking down at the ground. Uh, so even there, like the physical... Um, the physical... The way they're interacting with each other, I, I find to be um, pretty moving there because I, the boy's up on the horse and the father is on the ground is how I'm reading that. Is that right? Is that how you... And he puts his hand on his knee up at the up at the yeah. horse, and he's looking down at the ground. And so the father's got you know the boy's higher up than the father, and the father you yeah. know he's looking up at him, and then he looks at the ground. And there's this th- the physical manifestation of their relationship there is really moving. And he, and then the father says, "Son, I want you to be a man and do the things men do, but I want you to be a good man. I'm not yeah. going to worry about you, but don't take foolish risks and give the man who's paying you a good day's work. So long, partner." And then he waved to me as he closed the gate. And that's just one of those, you know, from the from the from the way they're walking to the way he talks to him to the waving at the gate. There's this, you know, there's this. He's releasing him. He, I, I even love the idea that it, it's a gate, you know, like a horse coming out of a corral. You know, he releases yep. the, he's releasing the horse out to to do the thing that the horse has been trained to do for all this time now. And at a certain point, you have to trust that the horse has been trained properly, or pass it on to the next, you know, the next level of training. I suppose in this case, yeah. Right. That's really good. I like that. You know, it's kind of mirroring or kind of in opposition to that is this image of the boat on the water because he's, he's, it talks a lot about how the father is controlling the boat. It's it's controlling. What does he say? Um, He fastened the string so the sail couldn't move and tied the long cord into the bowsprit. Um, Uh And it talks, so it talks about how he, you know, as it goes up and down the Creek, this, this toy boat that they've made, he's able to control it. Um, and make sure it goes where he wants it to go, assuming he, you know, gives it the right, puts it, you know, the, so assuming he understands how the current's working. But he can't totally do that. You can't, it's not quite the same with the boy or with a horse. You know, these living beings, you know, you have to let them control their own, what, you know, 
record <laughs> their own sale. Yeah. You know, you can't just you can't just control the sale itself with a boy or with a horse. So that is, you know, it seems as if the father's doing a lot of processing in the you know himself. You know, he's. Trying- uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. You can see the you can see father going through a a maturing process as well. And I think the, these two the the two passages right next to each other that you've just described really underscore that. I hadn't really thought about that before, but um, you never you never stop in your development arc, right? There's a building's room on when you go from boy to man, but when you go from maybe you know childless man to father or right. father of young people to father of adults, that's another maturing process that, that probably uh, takes it out of you as much as the first one did. Hmm. So I think it's neat to think that... Uh, of Ralph Moody, the author, as a father himself, maybe, or at least as an adult, yeah. um, right. building that kind of development into the the father character, mm. which certainly seems like he's doing here. Mm. It just occurs to me that we are at three different um, parenting stages. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, three of us? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've got, you know, my oldest is seven. Um, and Heidi, your kids are... 10, 10 and Jack thir- will be 13 next month. And that's so, a big deal. Yeah, I was going to guess 10 and 13. So I was, yeah. and then Adam being older than us, being the, the old, I mean, I mean, oh, I didn't, yeah, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah, my, uh, my youngest is 18. So, yeah. So, and, and, and if, you know, when you're living it, I suspect, I mean, Adam, you're probably, in some ways you probably look back and long for, you know, to have kids that are three, six, and seven. <laughs> those, were, those were great days. No and, doubt about it. And then in some ways I'm like, can someone please make my kids 13 as fast as possible? <laughs> <laughs> and then when they're 13, I'm going to be saying, can someone please make my kids 22 as fast right. as possible? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 um, and I, and I suspect that, I guess that I guess you're right though that that arc you know we never stop having an arc that we're that going up and down on you know we yeah, never stop right. having to learn to process something that's in front of us and some and usually it involves processing processing some kind of as with parenting anyway some kind of anxiety right yes. <laughs> well it's funny that um, this book seems to be the the thing you're supposed to think is you know if you take Ralph Moody's word for it kids today ought to be more like kids were in 1908 or we need to learn the things that kids learned in 1908. But this conversation puts me in mind of um, that actually when I read it, I I see the father doing his thing and I think, wow, that that's a good technique actually, you know, Mm -hmm. the way he gives Ralph his head and the way he, you know, brings the hammer down at certain times and not at other times. And this is, um, this is an interesting uh, object of contemplation, the way this father handles his business, hmm. and which you know just betrays the fact that I'm at the father stage instead of the instead of the son stage. So much interesting. I was thinking a lot about how, like I said, my oldest is seven, so he's a little bit younger than Ralph is at the beginning of the story. So by now he's ten, going on eleven or something like that in the book, and how um, I <laughs> I'm reading it, and he's giving these lectures, and he's having these moments with this kid, and. It, I kept thinking it's not that I don't have moments with my kids and give them lectures and teach them things, but also I feel completely incapable of teaching most of the things. Like I, I, I he comes seems to come up with the right thing to say in the moment, right? Right. <laughs> and I, I, you know, in some ways, it makes me um, 
I don't really know what I don't I don't want to say like feel like a bad dad. It just makes me feel like you know I, I, I don't feel like I come up with I feel like more often than not I come up with the wrong thing to say. <laughs> yeah, I think I I I know exactly what you're talking about, and I me think too. that there's one of the ways in which this is a um uh that this work of art, Little Britches, is is thinner and um and less profound than. Uh, uh, than a work of art on the same subject, written for an older audience, maybe, or you know, written by a an artist of greater powers, and it, it is that the father is is um, he's more or less perfect. He doesn't right. make any mistakes. Always, and, and maybe even specifically to what you just said, David, he's always got the right things to say, and he never seems at a loss for guidance and words for his son. This is completely unrealistic. <laughs> He's very idealized. In fact, I think all the adult male characters are flat in this book. Even Hyde, to some extent, is sort of like idealized for his rough around the edge. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but Father, in particular, even though we uh-huh. love him. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. never had a situation with any of my kids, and I have six, where I have thought, I know exactly what to say. <laughs> right. and yeah. I always sit talking. down and take a deep breath and breathe a silent prayer to God to give me the words, because I have no clue what to do. Well, <laughs> those conversations may yeah. be examples of what we talked about on the last episode of kind of these maybe they were longer lectures, made more concise for the purpose of what he said in his afterward, like he's actually trying to idealize father as a representation of the goodness yeah. of this era. Right. And that's what he's trying to do. So I'm almost willing to bet the farm that it didn't go down exactly as he's saying. <laughs> but as we talked about, it might tell the truer story in terms of the author's intent of how father shaped young Ralph in order to become a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I th- you know, um, certainly his, you know, he's going to draw on the way he remembers some of those moments. And he keeps, <laughs> I love how the author keeps saying, it really is amazing how father made sure the way he said things, people always remembered them as if he needs to keep like dropping an excuse. Like, no, no, no I promise. This is what he really said. Right. <laughs> he's just yeah. really good at saying things in a way that people remember. <laughs> I was laughing every time he would say something like that as, as he's kind of being apologetic in some ways. Right. Um, Explaining how, why and how. <laughs> Like no, he really was. Yeah. But yeah, I, I kept thinking, yeah, I I don't think I'd ever say that. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever in the moment think to say that. And and I was thinking about how, man, if this kid's if his oldest kid's only like nine, he can't be that much older than me. But I'd be like, I don't have anything to give my kids like that. <laughs> Which <laughs> right. I mean, probably you know not true. But if, you're, if your oldest son is nine, you're a newbie in some ways. Yeah. And how can you have this hoary old wisdom of the gray beard? Let me draw you a metaphor of the ship. So. <laughs> right. Well, and yeah. looking at my parenting, I probably say some wise things in a pretty grumpy tone that is not received <laughs> as wisdom, but uh, yeah. correction. So. Yeah, it's wise despite you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Blind squirrel nut sort of thing. Wisdom. I'm not sure it's really heard. Form and content matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my par- my theory of parenting. I figure that eventually, you know, a, a blind squirrel catches a nut eventually, right? Um, <laughs> I am sure. I hope so. <laughs> uh, but you know, on the other hand, you know, 
for a kid reading the book, the ki- the kids, the character that's going to appeal to the kid is is what Ralph's going through, right? And so there's a lot of a lot of wisdom in the story for a kid who is tr- trying to grow up, for a kid who is uh, maybe facing their own challenges or who wants who is being convinced that work hard work is a good thing, despite Adam Andrews take a couple episodes ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, f- d- so even though he's idealized, even though he's almost like a positive caricature, there is um, something to look up to that's valuable. You know, those, those idealizations, those, those uh, caricature type characters may not, they may be flat, as you said, but I can still look at that and I can still say, you know, I appreciate the way in the moment he is, he is patient. You know, he's, you know, he's maybe a little slow to speak. He, you know, I don't know if I'd be able to say what he says, but there are things worth imitating about him. And so, you know, that's where this book, that's, is, is valuable, even though it's, you know, even though it's a caricature and we can oh, I agree. separate I agree. those things. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, uh, keeping clear in our heads that, that Ralph is the protagonist, uh, obviously, then the father's role as a, as a literary device in the story is, is necessarily to be uh, more static and, uh, and less nuanced because his, you know, his role is to be the guy that the, that the protagonist bounces off of. Right. So I, I think the fact that he's idealized is um, taking, it, taking him in his place in the whole story. I don't think it's a detriment at all. Right. He's the conscience of the story and the representation of all the goodness of this era that um, Ralph Moody is trying to idealize. And so I think he has to be flat in the world of the story for it to work. And because I am not this even-handed and wise with my children, it is helpful as a read-aloud to for the kids yeah, to hear yeah. these beautifully crafted speeches from father as a a way of instilling wisdom in them so you know they're going to kind of hold on to some of those little concise statements that I'm not coming up with as my kids fall out of trees and I'm yelling at them right so that's <laughs> um you told you not to climb that tree so that is <laughs> I think that there's a lot of weight to that idealization. I do not think it is a flaw in the kind of novel that Ralph Moody is crafting here. Yeah, I I think of the, um, I I keep bringing up To Kill a Mockingbird. I think that was. Uh, Yeah, I was just going to mention that. Yeah. Atticus Finch is as flat a character as there is. That's right. We we don't love him any less for it. You know, he's universally beloved, and rightly so. He's the conscience in this world that's so confusing. These children need a conscience. They need a moral guide. That's an universal archetype in a coming-of-age novel. A, a parent is a good person to represent that. Mm. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about how these Tickle and Mockingbird and, um, and Little Britches, they seem to be after, you know, very different sort of cultural ends because here, Ralph Moody seems to be trying to preserve, uh, you know, the, the sort of the idealized version of this culture. And in some ways, Harper Lee is saying this world that I'm from is incredibly complicated and broken. And it's kind of, I mean, it's idealized in some ways, but it's also in, in other ways, it's kind of almost anti-idealized. And he, his flatness, you know, Atticus Finch's flatness or um, his own idealization seems to almost be the thing that, that, um, roots it in uh, 
um, almost like progress as opposed to looking back. They're almost inversion. The fathers, the two father characters are almost inversions in terms of what their purpose seems to be. But maybe I'm overthinking that. I don't know. No, you're exactly. I think you're exactly right. They're two very different novels, and the father is the conscience in two very different ways. But still, you need that anchor. I mean, I'm not reading my oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm reading the little <laughs> britches. So we don't need the big, flawed, round, robust characters from that have just equal flaws and darkness as they do. Like, like that's that's not necessary necessarily in a children's novel. That it's stated. Yeah, I mean, Aslan's a little flat too, right? So right, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you a question, Adam, and I forgot what it was. So I need you to talk for a second, even though <laughs> I forgot my question. <laughs> uh, you're putting me on the spot. Well, okay. So I do want to go back to Heidi, though, because I a lot of this conversation has just stemmed from me asking you what passage you like. So I want to give Heidi a chance to mention a passage that she liked um, from these from these chapters here. Is there something that really stood out to you? I, I really think these are turning point or cru- you know, crucial story arc chapters. So right. I, that's why I wanted to just say, what do you like in these chapters? Well, the passage I'm going to read, I didn't necessarily like because it's one of the saddest moments in the whole book, but it's really important and it was written beautifully. And I'm on page 192 in the chapter Tornado and Cloudburst when Fanny the horse dies. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm going to start with, I should, I should have thought about Fanny the first thing, but the choking make me sick at my stomach. And for a minute or two, I couldn't think at all. Then she squealed. I never knew a sound could hurt like Fanny squeal. I felt something had hold of me and was tearing me in two. When I hauled myself up through the sagebrush, I could see her muzzle and part of one twisted foreleg sticking above the water that was flowing over the bridge. I guess I lost my head when I saw it. The current had washed me about 60 feet down the creek, so I scrambled along the bank to the bridge trail and ran toward Fanny. I didn't even stop to think that the water might have carried the planks away, but splashed out onto the bridge. Her leg was broken over sideways just below the knee, and her hoof was caught in the hole it had made. She was straining to hold her head above the water and her eyes looked up at me as if she were begging me to help her. I don't think I ever planned what I did. I guess I just did it because I loved her. I jumped onto her head and clamped my legs around it. Her muzzle slipped off the end of the planks where I landed and she struggled once or twice. Then my head went under too. So this part when he... When his horse dies, I think is so profoundly different from any other part of the book in which he's putting himself in danger. He is having these scrapes and these narrow escapes from these terrible fates. But here's he actually loses something that he's somebody in his life that he loves. And that grief is formative to him. It shapes the rest of the novel in a lot of ways, but I love the description of the love that he had for the horse. Uh, this, I think he does a really good job of capturing the trauma of this moment in the paragraphs I just read. I think it's beautiful writing. And I, I love how in the chapters to come, he kind of, he just 
describes his grief. He does a really good job of showing, not telling, you know, one of those basic rules of craftsmanship. He does a really good job of that in how his grief is changes him as, you know, a professional, as a as a cowboy, and how it kind of he's always carrying with him this loss, carrying this forward and this moment that's actually profoundly traumatic to a child. But it's father who rescues him and it's part of the life that he's chosen for himself that he's leaning into. So I, I loved this chapter in the sense that you know, not because I thought it was entertaining, but because I right. see the formative power of this and that this young man, it's not just all the fun and games of becoming a cowboy. There's loss and there's no. um, danger that, you know, breaking nine toes actually, even though it's really sad, it sounds pretty funny. It really right. does, kind of sounds funny, but this is just trauma. Yeah. So yeah. that is... And it's not just risk to himself that he's kind of dodging or evading these terrible fates. This is actually something very sad that happened as a result of the life that he's chosen. And I think that it's not surprising or I think that it's telling that it comes right before the chapter I become a cowpoke. Exactly. Yes. Why do you say that, David? Well, I think that... <clears throat> I mean, I think that you see, you know, as he begins to to train and get to know this other horse... I think a lot of the lessons and a lot of the things that he was taught by his father in learning to ride Fanny over the years and building a relationship with that horse, those um, seem to be seem to have built a foundation for the way that he was able to sort of, you know, work with this this new horse with with Sky High, and and I think that I think that there is a sort of dramatic. There's a lot of pathos and a, and a lot of dramatic. Um, you know, there's a lot of emotional tension that comes through, you know, this horse dies and, you know, he loved Fanny. He talks, you know, it says, I, you know, I did it because I loved her. Because I loved her. Um, yeah. and he had this relationship with this horse that was very dear to him that he, and he'd been through a lot. It had, he had, it, this horse had done a lot of work with him and they were almost, you know, he talked about how, he talks later on about how Sky High wasn't quite as good at, you know, it, knowing what he wanted as Fanny was. And so he had this very, you know, personal, well, not personal by definition, but very intimate sort of close relationship with this horse. And they, they seem to be on a wavelength together. And, uh -huh. and this, so there is this dramatic, it's very sad that, that that goes away. And then this new horse comes. And so you kind of are, you kind of feel him longing for this new Fanny. And we as readers are sort of on the lookout for that new relationship with the horse. Because that, you know, these, these, man and horse relationships are so important and crucial both to the world and to the story itself. Right. That's neat. I love the way that, uh, this, that Ralph Moody in, in this particular genre, children's novel, uh, uh, memoir buildings, Roman written for young readers can handle tragedy with such a gentle touch and, uh, in almost a, um, almost a joyous way. Um, it seems very, uh, the tone of this, of this heavy passage mm -hmm. seems really uh, approachable and accessible and non-threatening. And, um, you know, I wouldn't have any trouble reading that to the youngest child. Mm. Uh, it, it seems, it seems like it's a, uh, it, it's a good way to introduce right. tragedy to a young reader, uh, somebody who's as, who's as, has as light a touch as Ralph Moody does. Mm. Mm. 
Well, Adam, I, I know. Go ahead, Heidi. You were going to say something. Oh, I, I'm going to read another couple sentences, just a few pages later. That goes to what Adam just said about, I think the, the way that this is written really honors the tragedy of that loss without being graphic or gratuitous about it. And in a way that is consistent with how a child manages that kind of loss. Um, Mm. You know, he's not sitting around thinking about it and dwelling on it and trying to explain it to himself and thinking about it. He's just kind of absorbing it into the trajectory of his life and his development the way a child does, right? And I think they do a good job of that. So on one on page 196, um, he is talking to Hi right before they're doing this training. And he says, I didn't want to talk about killing Fanny in the flood, which that verb, killing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so telling. That's not what happened. He didn't kill Fanny in the flood, but that's how a child deals with trauma, Right, mm-hmm. I did something, but he just works it into the flow of this sentence. I didn't want to talk about killing Fanny in the flood. And I guess I saw I was getting a little choked up. So he asked me where I had put my saddle and blanket. Uh, and just that little sent. I love that sentence because that reveals to us he's still working through this and he's not quite to the truth yet. He's not quite to settledness yet. It's still at him. But, uh, but there's this male figure in his life, this kind of surrogate father figure who sees that and is kind of teaching him how to how to deal with that. You're getting on the horse, go find the saddle and the blanket. Right? There's there's a lot going on in that the craft of that sentence that tells you about how this young man is handling this grief. Yeah. And 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 how his community is rallying around him to help him get through it. So I I just thought that this was very beautifully crafted in terms of the writing. And if you're paying attention, you're kind of catching how Ralph is still impacted by it. But he's just going on to the next thing, doing the next thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, Adam, I know you need to go a little early today. So you've got a couple minutes left. And I wanted to just like, give you a chance to offer some final thoughts in this section. And then hi, I've got a so I'm going to ask Heidi one other question and then, and then we'll go. But uh, you can, after you give your final thought, you can go whenever you're ready to. My final thought uh, on this section is, is a, um, a personal revelation. Uh, little Ralph awesome. Moody, young Ralph Moody gets to be a cowpoke in this section. And um, the, the reason that I love little britches, the, the subliminal reason, the foundational reason that I love little britches is that my uh, father is from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my grandmother lived in in Oklahoma when I was little. I grew up in Seattle. And we would go to visit her when I was Ralph Moody's age. Hmm. And we were the pride and joy of her life. And she showed us around, me and my brother, and um, and gave us a glorious time when we went to visit. And one of the things she liked to do was take us to a friend of hers who was a cowboy and uh, ride his horses. And we were such city slickers. wearing <laughs> <laughs> wearing city little boy shorts and matching shirts because my mom was dressing us up for the vacation. And I used, I used to feel... And we, my grandmother would take us to this friend of hers who was an honest-to-goodness cowboy and wore cowboy clothes. And we got up on real horses and walked around and we loved it so much. But this feeling of being out of place and being, um, uh, being a, a pretender 
because I was a city slicker, was deeply ingrained on my little consciousness as a kid. And so I remember after one of these trips where I just had a glorious time with the horses, but I felt so out of place. I remember thinking, someday I'm going to be a real cowboy. (laughs) And I want it with all my heart. And it's so funny. I'm 50 years old and I still want to be a cowpoke. And I, I, I did the next best thing. I moved out into the sticks of Northeast Washington. And so I live near cowboys, but I am, <laughs> I am as city slicker as a man can possibly be. But in my heart, it has never gone away since I was Ralph Moody's age, this, this deep longing to be an authentic cowboy. And so I love this section because little Ralph Moody gets to do what, what I'm never really probably ever going to do, but I've always wanted to. So I love it. You know, my my grandma was from Texas and she lived in Wisconsin, but she grew up in Texas. And when I was three years old, she was putting cowboy hats and cowboy stuff on us. And every day of my childhood that I can rem- that I can remember, you know, so we got you know older. My brother and I were we were literally cowboys every day. We have if there's a picture of us, it, we've probably got some kind of a cap gun or a cowboy hat or something. We had the spring horses, so you know we had the whole getup. We watched Bonanza religiously. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I know it well. I um, it's still to this day in my deep in my heart. I would be a cowboy if I had the chance in a heartbeat. Yeah, I, I'm. It's funny because I'm right there with you. My my sister became the closest thing. You know, she like, she has horses. She has a horse. She, you know, before she got married and moved away, she was worked in barns, taking care of horses and was riding all the time. She has a giant scar on her shoulder because she broke her collarbone getting thrown from a horse. So, you know, she got to live that out a little bit, but you know, the rest of us have to live it through books <laughs> and Western <laughs> movies. <laughs> all right, well, well, we'll let you go. Um, and thank hey, you for joining us. We'll talk yep. to you next week. Okay. See you next time. All right. Heidi, you can stick with me for a minute. Yeah, of course. Okay. So, you know, I, I'm so I'm so glad that he mentioned that this idea mm-hmm. of of deep in his heart he has wanted to be a cowboy. Because that's what, you know, I mentioned earlier, that's the arc that this story has been leading to. The whole story has been leading to, it seems like, ostensibly anyway, Ralph Moody, Little Britches, becoming a cowboy, becoming a cowpoke, becoming high, as I mentioned. Right. And you know that that's the thing that he wants most, and he he he's getting close to accomplishing it here. Um, do you think that it's everything that he dreamed that it would be? Do you get that sense? Like, do you get the sense that he is as a kid? I mean, he's young; he's just beginning it. Right. Do you get the sense that it is fulfilling that deep inner drive that's motivating this story? I do actually get the feeling that it's deeply fulfilling to him. But what I really like about this story is that he also brings with him to that sense of fulfillment, that sense of I'm here where I want to be. I'm I'm growing in my chosen profession of cowboying. Like that's, um, he's also bringing with him uh, all of this. It's cost him something to get there and he has, there's a there's a strong mm. sense of that mm. even yeah. in his accomplishment it's you know the death of fanny the the struggles of their family the economic and the water right struggles um the breaking of the he, toes yeah his injuries the risks that he's taking the the harshness of the land there's uh there is this sense of 
he's carrying the weight of all those things as while he's on the horse. Like mm. the the horse isn't setting him free from that. He's kind of bringing it with him, and mm. yeah. he is coming to an awareness of that. Mm. And that I think is part of the arc of maturity. I don't think it would ring true if he gets on the horse and leaves all that behind. Um. But that's, I mean, that's the human journey, right? Like the thing that we thought we wanted costs us something. And then we we carry that cost with us in the next phase of our becoming. Mm. Yeah, what I do mean. You think? I have no desire to be a cowboy. So I do not <laughs> relate to that, this like masculine ethos of this book. Like there's no sense of like wish fulfillment, like, just, wow, he's living my trajectory of life. I want to be just like Ralph. But I know that that's like very profound to the American male psyche. So can you like, can you explain that to me? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Is it uh, unsayable? I don't know. Um, well, I mean, I mean, it's you know, I had I had lots of friends like you know, growing up from an early early age, I had friends who were like they're they're eight years old and they're like, I'm gonna be a police officer. I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a right. you know, astronaut or whatever. An, you know, you know, like there's all these different things that boys and and certainly girls as well, you know, to varying degrees, I suppose, have this dream to become. And if you're asking me why did I, um. Or what is it that's so appealing to the American man, this cowboy ethos? I know you can only speak for yourself, but that's probably more universal well, than you Yeah, think. I mean, I, I suspect that um, the... I, sus- I suspect that it's just that we call it cowboy and, it, you know, I, everybody else in the world calls it something else. Um, because you mentioned that the American... something central to the American man. I... Um, well, let me ask you this. Why do you think that so many, why do you think this for so many women, the idea of a cowboy is such an appealing thing? Right. And, and I think that's a good counter question to what I said, even though you didn't answer. But that's, um, <laughs> I, I think that, that there is this sense of the cowboys are the explorers, are like the vanguard of manifest destiny. They're, they're experiencing the land and mastering it. Um, and then there's the freedom yeah I think that riding off to the sunset thing do you think that's true well I think the first part that what you're talking about there before you spoke about freedom and riding off into the sunset I think that that (laughs) is I think that's true I think that's one of the things that makes it American and and like sort of existentially appealing Um, Uh but I, I think that it's sort of simpler than that I think that one of the things, the reasons this book works is because I think that when we talk about, you know, when I think about being nine, eight years old, nine years old, whatever it was, and wanting to be a cowboy and thinking how great that would be. And even now when I'm out, like when I'm out West or I meet people who are cowboys, I'm like, man, those guys are living a good life, even though they're probably (laughs) living a very hard life. Um, I think that there is something to, about this concept of these are people who, um, work really hard who are tough you know there's a Mm -hmm. toughness to a cowboy um like if anyone's ever ridden a horse for long distances you know that that's kind of a pain in the butt literally um (laughs) you know you like you you get tough you get callous you you endure a lot um you certainly pay for it in some ways um but 
that's appealing to a young to a young man, I think, to a boy. Mm-hmm. Like the, to say to look at someone like I mean, the reason why John Wayne is appealing to so many people is because he is tough. Because he mm-hmm. he he was always he was willing to stare down things that were challenging. You know, because because you could look at him and you could say. I want to be like him because I want, not because of necessarily. I mean, he was c- kind of cool in a way. Like he had his walk and his bracelet, mm-hmm. and, you know, he could shoot straight and all that. Um, but you know, these guys are, they can endure things, you know, they were tough. They, they were, they were, they were worth imitating because they, they were long suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's a big part of it. I think that young boys and men want this sense of, I mean, I, I can't speak to being a girl. Obviously, I'm sure it's true for women too, and, and for young girls and stuff. And stuff. But um, they want. I, I just remember being a boy and wanting to know that I could make it through hard things, right? And like you know, you, you kind of play at making through the hard things. You play the adventure, and you use your imagination to think about how you might get through a tough thing. Um, and presumably, that does prepare us for later on doing that going through the tough things but these western stories are they're great stories of adventure as well and and an adventure is getting through a hard thing right right getting through something you are not sure that you can make it through right enduring when it seems like all is lost whether it's because you've got you're cornered by the by the uh jesse james gang or because the you're on you're driving cattle through the uh through through a snowstorm or wait, going across the Red River or whatever Western archetype, or you have to you have to rescue some damsel in distress who's been kidnapped, right? Right. <laughs> um, there's all these archetypes, but it's it's about in, you know enduring the thing that's hard, and those guys that's what they did, and that's why it's appealing. I think. I think so I think there is this sort of you know the, being on the vanguard of manifest destiny, but I think it's also much more personal, right. than that. Right. I, I I rambled there for a little bit as I was trying to think about it, but that's what happens when you're on a podcast and you're thinking. <laughs> no, I think that's really good because that kind of ethos is not, I don't want to say it's not appealing to me. It's appealing to me, but it's not something I yearn for. Like, honestly, sure. I read these pioneer stories, even when I was a little girl and I was like, I haven't taken a shower for like weeks. Like <laughs> it's really uncomfortable. I would have stayed in New York City. So that's... Yeah, that does kind of that that I I you know I definitely am. <laughs> like when was the last time they brushed their teeth? Like like I said last week about mom, there's so many homeschool moms that just like love that story. It's just not a. I just think about Ma being cooped up with her four kids through the long winter. And I, that just makes me, I, I wouldn't handle that well. <laughs> um, but, but in some ways, doesn't that is like sort of aspirational? Like, right. Well, yeah. and I think what you said about the, like being tough, being the kind of person who can withstand the slings and errors of outrageous fortune and not be overwhelmed by them. That is appealing. Everybody wants that. We want to be strong and brave. We want to endure. That is, that's not just American, that's human. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what you were saying. Um, And have adventures and, uh, you know, overcome these obstacles, even ours, become masters of ourselves. That is the human journey. So 
and and I do want to clarify, I, there is something about cowboys that is that is very American because they were participants in the place that we live in, and the, and our country is so majestic and wild even now you know even even as civilization has grown just so dramatically you know there's so so little of america has never been stepped on you know but you know and so there is something very representative uh, if you love america if you love the place if you've been out west and you see how you know how big the landscape is you know i think there's something about there's something poetic about right. the cowboy being in that land that's appealing. Right. Well, and putting civilization there, you know, think about the sheriffs and the gunslingers and uh, the cowboy yeah, life. They're, they're knights. It's anarchy too, oh, well. right? And so... <laughs> Minus the chivalry. Right. Which is why it's a knight's tale. Like that's... that To your point that in other cultures, it's a different kind of... Thing, but it's the same archetype, you know, like whether it's ninjas or spacemen or cowboys <laughs> or knights in shining armor, there's there's this this idea of the masculine soul taming the land and having many adventures along the way. That's I mean, that's a powerful drive. But for and in America, it really is specifically the cowboy. Well, and you know, one of the reasons I like that that chapter um, where he trains sky high is because there is something you know in the, in a knight's tale. You know, there's there's kind of a chivalric code, right? And right. in a cowboy's tale, there's a code. It's different, you know, but there is still a code. And often the code is most ex- most often expressed through the relationship between the man and the horse. Right. You know, and, and there's a code in the way you treat. The horse is a code in the way you train it. There's a code in the way you you interact with it, and then then the the man and the horse, kind of the cowboy and the horse, sort of become one. And there is an idealization in that, right? But it's it's sort of an aspirational idealization. That's why I don't think I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking. I think this is an idealized book, but I don't think that it's a sentimental book. Right. I think that there, you know, it idealizes something that is aspirational but it doesn't make it saccharine or overly sweet or remove the suffering from it right like it says yes there's suffering but that suffering is towards a noble end right. and so that yeah that's idealized you know the means to get there at times is idealized and some of the characters are idealized but it's in a way that it can be um that's both poetic and motivating and at the same time and and, and um and noble. You know, there's a nobility to this story, I think. that is Well, that is, and as is, you're talking, David, I'm thinking about kind of this, in, in light of what I just said about how the West, during this time of expansion and manifest destiny, is chaos, right? It's anarchy. There's nobody to call. So when you have that code, that the other code that's really clear in Little Britches along with the man and his horse is being a good neighbor. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that I think is t- to fa- to father's credit here. You have to idealize that in a land in which you can't just call the police, right? Like this is a wild place. And so you have to stick to the code of being a good neighbor, the same way the knights had to stick to the code of chivalry, there is no room 
for deviating outside of it because this is such a stark place. Um, Mm. and, And so you have to instill that in your children, knowing that they're, you know, sinners that are and selfish, just like all people are. So for a father, he can't give Ralph any room to not be a good man because he's trying to raise somebody who's ruled by himself because there isn't the outside structures of civilization to kind of do it for them. As we say to our kids, you, you rule yourself or we will rule you. Hmm. So that he has to teach his son how to, you know, how to ride a horse too, but how to be a good man. That passage you read at the end of the chapter about the current, like, I want you to be a man and do all the things a man does, but I want you to be a good man. Um, that's that that's necessary in a harsh land that doesn't have kind of the structures of civilization to enforce it just a man and his son Mm. Mm. yeah well we should probably wrap up yeah it's about that time you know people say they would listen for for (laughs) i'm not not sure how much we want to test that theory um (laughs) at least not too often um, don't forget about all the, the stuff that's going on on the, the Close Reads Podcast Network. We are going to be doing the final chapters of Little Britches next week. And then after that, we'll do our Q&A episode. So remember, you can post questions uh, over on the, on the Facebook page or on Instagram or shoot us an email at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Um, and then we also, of course, are working our way through Macbeth. So we've done three Acts of Macbeth now. That's right. Yep. Three. Um, and hopefully we'll have Act 4 up soon. It may, Act 4 may already be up by the time we we record before by the time we post this episode. Um, my, I'm a little off on my timing <laughs> right now. My head's a little twisted around. Um, but then, of course, we have the daily poem. And one of the things I'm going to be doing in May is um, not, not exclusively, but every now and then uh, going through various folk um, songs and uh, oh, you know cool things like that. that. So um, May on the first one, I actually, May 1st, I actually did, um, for example, um, the, the, uh, one of the original texts of the song Home on the Range, um, just because I wanted to read it as a poem. So I want to look at, you know, various kinds of folk songs, even some Native American poetry and songs and things like that. Just, you know, mix it up a little bit this May. So you'll hear a lot of the traditional poems as well, but then I'm, I'm throwing a few of those in here and there. Um, picked up a cool anthology of American poetry, which is from the 19th century at a used bookstore, one of the, uh, one of those Library of America books. And it's got a lot of, mm-hmm. um, American Indian songs and folk songs and even some spirituals and stuff in it. So I thought that would be, cool. that'd be a fun, fun little twist for May. So if you're listening to the daily poem, be on the lookout for that. If you're not, but you're interested in those kind of poems, then you can check that out. And then of course we've got Libromania with, uh, lots of great content coming up on there as well. So. Um, yeah and then of course thank you to Classical U from Classical Academic Press remember that if you head over to classicalu.com slash code and enter the code Cersei Podcast you can have free access to Classical U through June 29th and they do have as I mentioned at the top of the show they do have accreditation now through ACSI so you can again check that out classicalu.com slash code and enter the code Cersei Podcast at checkout all right, with that, thanks to everyone. Thanks to uh, Adam Andrews and to Heidi. Heidi, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Thank you, David. So for Heidi, for Adam, for everyone here at the Close Reads Podcast Network and the Cersei Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week and happy reading. Happy reading.